It's a phrase from popular movies. It's also a question that comes up in our daily life. The question is, is that even legal? We talk about the things that drive you crazy, the things you won't believe, and the things you need to know and understand. I'm attorney Bob Sewell, and this is the podcast, Is That Even Legal? Let's get started. On the podcast here today, we have Justice Catherine King and Justice James Bean. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here today. It's good. I'm glad to be back, Bob. Just as a way of introduction, you're a U of A grad. You are a mom of two kids. You've been serving as a private attorney in your past career, and you've also served in many public service positions. And you, now you are on the Supreme Court, and so I'm super glad to have you on the show. Justice Bean, as a way of introduction, you're a dad of two kids. You also have a distinguished public service career. I know you volunteer a lot in the community. I've seen that on your resume. And you have served as a prosecutor for a lot of your career and a judge, I think, since when was it? Um, today is actually my 13th anniversary as a judge. I started in, in the Superior Court here in Maricopa County uh, in 2009. So I'm super glad to have you on as well. I want to tell you a little story and take you back in time. And we're going to take you back, believe it or not, um, to 1154 when King Henry II took the throne of England, okay? There were thereabouts, I think it was 1154, okay? So if any history buffs out there, okay, <laughs> if I get any of this wrong, you were wrong. No, no, just kidding. But, um, but King Henry, he was... At first, he was the Duke of Normandy. Then he, be, he then he rose to be a king. He had uh, different times. He had uh, as part of his kingdom, part of Scotland, Wales. He had England. He had parts of France. Obviously, Normandy. So he had a long, uh, rather a geographically wide kingdom. And at the time, kings were expected to judge. They judged everything. Right? They made the law. And they judged on individual cases as well. Well, this was not possible for King Henry. And he wanted to make sure, he was, he was an efficient ruler, and he wanted to make sure that his kingdom had laws that were consistent throughout the kingdom, that they could count on his laws. And so he formed these judges that would judge, and they had different, different you know, ways of getting around the kingdom. And they all agreed, these judges, to follow each other's precedent. And, th and thus, the, the tradition of stare decisis was born. Is stare decisis still relevant today? Justice King? Well, absolutely, it is relevant. You know, I've been sitting on, on I've been hearing cases on the Supreme Court since... Um, since August of 2021. But as you were talking, I started thinking about um, when I was in private practice, I was private um, in private practice at two different law firms. And um, I practiced primarily labor and employment law and some commercial litigation. And in, in many areas, in many issues that um, came up in my practice, for example, the area of restrictive covenants, um, mm -hmm. covenants, um, if I'm 
was advising a client on a covenant not to complete, com, not to compete and the enforceability of such a covenant. Um, because of the way the law has developed in Arizona, the very first thing I would go look at is um, case law. What do the cases in Arizona say on that issue? Um, so understanding that um, citizens in Arizona are, re- are relying on um, case precedent in conforming their conduct um, in the state of Arizona, I, I do think stare decisis is, is still relevant. So let me just say so for our listeners, stare decisis is the idea that judges follow the rulings of the past, right? And I, th- and I think it literally means stand by things decided in Latin, right? So let me, let me push back on you. You're at the top of the food chain in Arizona. Do you care about stare decisis? Do you look at what the law is? I do look. I do care about stare decisis, and I do look at what prior case law has said, Arizona Supreme Court case law has said on a particular issue. What, Justice Bean, is it something you think even think about, right? I mean, everyone in law school is taught there are the sources of law are constitutional law, the statutory law written by the by the legislature, the administrative law written by whoever writes the administrative law, <laughs> and court-made law. That's stare decisis. Is stare decisis something you think about when you're hearing a case? Uh, absolutely. As, as Justice King alluded to, when we begin to uh, analyze a case, you, you have to look at what the precedent is. And in large part, um, I mean, there is statute, as you as you alluded to, but there's there's past precedent not only from our court, from the state Supreme Court, but from the U.S. Supreme Court. And when we tee up the issues or when the issues are teed up for us, we have to see what the law is um, as it stands at that time that we're deciding the case. And if a party is asking us to move off of that, we need to know what it is and 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 in context of what they're asking us uh, to to maybe make it or how to interpret it. Um, so stare decisis really is kind of the bedrock. It's one of the bedrock principles that we start with. Um, and it gives consistency to the law. It gives the parties, uh, litigants, lawyers, judges, um, um, kind of like I said, kind of a, uh, the, the bedrock principles in which they can operate under. Um, however, I want to make the point that... Um, Stare decisis isn't um, isn't the end all be all. Okay. We all take the we all take an oath to the Constitution. Justice King did, I did. We take an oath to uphold the Constitution of the state of Arizona and the U.S. Constitution. We did not take an oath to uphold stare decisis. Yeah. And if there is something that runs afoul of the Constitution, our state or federal Constitution, then we have a we have a, a duty to look at that carefully. And there is case law in Arizona, stare decisis actually, (laughs) that tells us when we can move off of um, precedent. Um, It's it's a, as lawyers and judges are like to do, it's a multi-pronged test that you have to run through. And if a decision in the past doesn't meet that test, then it gives courts, our court um, and the U- U.S. Supreme Court, the, ob- the, uh, uh, the ability to move off a of precedent and reset the law as to what they believe the Constitution mandates. So, you know, <clears throat> the reason why I asked it, and I, I, I don't push back on YouTube for this, because the, this 
people get a little worked off about it. And, and maybe it's because they don't understand. Maybe it's because it's a frustrating principle. But when you begin to read these Supreme Court opinions and they're quoting something, that the, the justices are quoting something from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, maybe from a principle back in England 500 years ago. Is it helpful to go back and look at the way something was 500 years ago and to look at the law as it was 500 years ago and quote some old geezer who's long since dead? Or do we want to look at it with fresh eyes? Put, it in, put this in perspective for me. We do rely, I mean, the, the case law in Arizona can go back, you know, 100 years, let's say, that we're looking at case law from um, 100 years ago. And I, I do think we, if I understand your question, but we, we do need to look at that case law. That is precedent. And maybe it's, it's, a, it's a case that has been cited um, in, in other cases. It's, it's, it's continually been cited throughout the, throughout the history. And it, and it remains faithful and true to the Constitution, let's say if it's a constitutional case involving a constitutional issue, then yes, of course, we, we are going to look at that, even if it was a case law from 85 years ago in Arizona. Yeah. In, in Arizona, we have a constitution that's about 110 years old um, since uh, statehood uh, was achieved in, in 1912. And we don't have in Arizona a, a really robust um, uh, case law on, on our state constitution. Obviously, we can look at the federal constitution for provisions that are similar to our state constitution, but, but our state constitution is different. So when we have a case that has a constitutional provision that hasn't been really looked at that closely, we, it, it necessitates that we go back and look at the words 110 years ago and how, to use your term, those old geezers kind right, of uh, right, right. wrote it. And what was the original public meaning at that time? That's yeah. what we look at because we want to we want to glean what the Constitution meant at that time, because the Constitution is really the fundamental law. It's, it's the intention of the people. Um, statute is more of the intention of the people's um, agents through the legislature. So we have to look to see what what the framers meant at that time, um, and that informs us as to how we um, interpret constitutional provisions today. So it, it, it necessitates us to go back and look at that original public meaning, and and that starts our process. That starts our analysis. And to that end, too, I mean, one of the one of the the books that I have in my chambers is a dictionary from 1912. Yeah. Um, so you know, at the time of our Constitution, if we're looking at um, whether it's whether it's a constitutional issue in a case that that maybe is the Supreme Court 70 years ago had addressed, or we are addressing for the first time, one of the first things that I I want to know and that I that I will look at. Is well, you know, if this, if 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 the if there's not really a description of what a particular word means, and the case comes down to what does that word mean, I will look. Well, what 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 was the public meaning of that word as set forth in dictionaries in 1912? Yeah, I I have this really old dictionary too, and I 
I have a little crush on my dictionary. Okay, I, bu- <laughs> I bought it at a used bookstore, and um, well, you're a judge of the making. Yeah, right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've told all my compatriots at work about it, and and then they come in when they when they're stuck, and they're like, "I got this. I know it should be this, but I don't. You know, the Webster's Dictionary published last year has not helped me out. So come come to my Three volume international dictionary published back in the 50s. And they open it up and it's got everything. Yes, so yeah. important. Well, it, and it is too. I mean, for example, the word viral today can mean a, a lot of things, right? I mean, right. We, we attribute it to something that goes viral on the internet. Well, what was the original public meaning of the word viral? Back in 1912, you know, that's what we need to look at to determine the original public meaning of the Constitution. Okay, I want to I want to get back get to the process. You know, a lot of people don't understand the process of you two being appointed. A lot of people don't understand how it works in Arizona. And I wasn't originally from Arizona. I came here after my first year of law school. After after a year after law school, I came here to Arizona. Um, and I'm not fluffing your egos right now, but because it it's generally speaking, our judges are really qualified. Generally speaking, they're they're really good at their jobs, right? They they actually care. They're thoughtful. They're kind to my clients. You know, even in tough situations, even when they're getting trashed by my, you know, something you might have once in a while. You have someone who has outbursts. They've done a really good job. So I really feel like the people who are doing this, getting people on the bench, are doing a good job. How so? You know, we have listeners all over. How does it work, Justice Bean? How did you get your job? All right. Um, in Arizona, we have um, merit selection. There are some states that have direct election of judges. Actually, in um, some of the smaller rural counties, the superior court judges are still elected. But in the, in the larger counties, counties with populations over 250,000, that's Pima, Pinnell, Maricopa, um, Coconino. Um, yeah, I think it's those four, those mm-hmm. four counties. They go through, their judges are selected what we call merit selection. And that has been enshrined in Article 6 of our state constitution. That was passed by uh, the people, I think, back in 1974. Mm-hmm. So um, with that, they have a, a trial court commission in each one of these four counties, and they have an appellate court commission that sits statewide. And when I first started um, as a judge 13 years ago, I went through the Maricopa County Trial Court Commission. Uh, they, they post an opening that there's a, a, a position open on the superior court. You put in an application. Um, that application goes to the, the trial court commission. They review the application. If they see fit to interview you, they bring you in for an interview. And then how many people are there to interview you? Uh, the commission, at it, when it stands at full capacity, is 15. There's wow. 10, 10 uh, public uh, members, non-lawyer. There are five lawyer members. And then a justice on the state Supreme Court chairs it. Right now, I chair the Pinnell County uh, Trial Court Commission. Okay. So I went in front of that commission. I interviewed. Um, I started with Governor Napolitano. I was unsuccessful in her uh, time on uh, when she was governor. When she left to go back to Washington, D.C., um, Governor 
then Secretary of State Brewer moved up and became Governor Brewer. And actually, I was lucky enough to be her first appointment. Um, so you interview with the commission, and then the commission sends a slate of candidates up to the governor, and you interview with the governor. And I inter- I've interviewed with Governor Napolitano, Governor Brewer, and twice with Governor Ducey. So I did the same process with the appellate court. I served for two and a half years on the Arizona Court of Appeals for Division One that sits here in Phoenix. I did that process with the appellate court commission. Um, actually, I got the phone call from, you always wait for the phone call okay. <laughs> from the governor's office right. when, when you're up there. And actually, when I was appointed to the Arizona Court of Appeals, I received the phone call from Kate King, who was deputy general counsel for Governor Ducey at the time, telling me that I had been appointed to the Court of Appeals. Um, she wasn't there a couple of years later when I was appointed to the state Supreme Court, but I went through that process, bo- both the trial court and the two appellate court uh, commissions. Okay, so if you feel comfortable, what does the governor want to know? You sit down for an interview. How long does it last? The um, in, the interview with Governor Ducey, I'll say I've had uh, two of those. They ask, they last about forty to forty five minutes. Okay. And um, Kate could definitely correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he comes in. You're, you're sitting there. I was sitting there with with the general counsel, Mike Liberty, who now Judge Liberty, and, and Kate, and we were sitting down. And there was really no small talk. Um, and all, and we're on the ninth floor in the mm-hmm. governor's uh, office, in the governor's suite of offices. And all of a sudden, the door opens and. The governor walks in, and of course, you stand up and shakes hands, and he says, I have, have about 45 questions that I want to get, or 40 questions that I want to get through in about 45 minutes. <laughs> okay. So brevity <laughs> is, is paramount, and the more, I, more questions I ask you, the more I know about you, and the better that, that will be for you. So he set the tone, set the table very quickly for that. And then you just go through a list of questions that he has. He's mainly wanting to tease out what your judicial philosophy is. And, and Governor Brewer did that as well with me. But they want to they know what type of philosophy you have as a judge and how you'll act as a judge on the bench and how more, probably more importantly, how you'll decide cases as a judge once you're on the bench. Hmm. How does he get to that conclusion? Did you feel like he? Do you feel like he knew that at the end of forty-five minutes? I, I hope he. I hope he did. I, that that's was that was my goal, and and I think we went through a series of cases, um, prior cases, Arizona Supreme Court cases, U.S. Supreme Court cases, and he didn't want to know if I agreed with the the, the ultimate outcome. He wanted to know what did I th- thought of the process, how the justices arrived at their at their ultimate decision. Was that the correct process? Was that did that? Um, reflect the correct philosophy, uh, in my oh. opinion, or the incorrect philosophy, in my opinion. So we teased that out. He asked me um, personal questions. He wanted to know me as a person. He wanted to know um, just different things about my life. And again, 45 minutes isn't a, a lot of time, but I, it, it, with Governor Ducey, there's a pre-interview that I had with his staff. And that, that was the time that actually Kate and some of her colleagues interviewed me prior to the interview with Governor Ducey. So he had those notes. He had their comments about me prior to our interview as well. And he also has, they taped the interviews in front of the appellate court commission. So they review those interviews as well. So, you know, there's probably at least a couple hours of, of interviews where they ask questions from different angles, different types um, that they can review prior to making that decision. Was your, was your experience similar, Justice King? It was, it was very similar. It's a very structured, the merit selection system works exceptionally well here in Arizona. 
Um, there are Supreme Court justices throughout the country and other states who are who are elected. And um, I, you know, I, I have always practiced law here in Arizona, and I have always been very encouraged um, by the by the judges, the judicial officers that I appeared before as a as a private as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is something to be said about the merit selection system. I think it's an exceptional system. And it is very thorough, and it's a very structured process. I think that the process is exceptionally robust. It's thorough. It takes place. Um, the Constitution sets forth that the that the commission has sixty days to send a list of names to the governor. Okay. And if the governor does, <clears throat> if that list is not sent within 60 days, the governor can, can make the, an appointment of any qualified person, uh, any qualified licensed attorney in Arizona. Um, and then. So people second, get that done in 60 days. They, they want to get their say in, right? It's on a very specific timeline. And, and likewise, once the governor receives the list of names, um, she or he has 60 days to make that appointment. And if that appointment is not made within 60 days, then the chief justice can make under, under article six of our constitution can make that appointment. So it is, it is, can, can run about 120 days. Um, so there's a lot of time to be very thorough at the commission level and at the governor's office. So what did you, now that you've been on the job for a while, what did you think, Hey, you know what? These yucksters, you want to call them yucksters. <laughs> These guys missed this question. They should have asked me this because this was really important to the job. Now that you know, and you would, you would be able to Monday morning quarterback what they did. Tell me what what would you ask them? There, there are, well, um, let me just say when when I, I I understood that there were a lot of different aspects to this job, um, but. There, there is so much more than to this job than just hearing cases and writing opinions. We spend a lot of time doing a lot of other things. Um, one example is the, you know, the administration of the court system. There are about 10,000 employees, about over 200 locations. Um, there's a lot of, and especially during COVID, um, and I know I'm getting a little bit sidetracked, but you know there were other parts of the country where courts just closed down. They just yeah. shut down. And here in Arizona, um, we managed to we keep going. Yeah. We kept our courts open, albeit in a different format, um, but they were open. And so, you know, one aspect that I think necessarily didn't come up during my pro- maybe it has another another uh, uh, application processes, but. Or through the application process, but for me, you know, the oversight and the court administration questions along those lines um, would have been very relevant to the job that that we do because there is a lot of to it. You know, we oversee the committee on examinations and the committee on character and fitness. Um, just two weeks ago, I was at the national conference on bar examiners, their annual conference, just to better understand what are what what changes are coming to the bar exam and what are law students facing right now. So that's an important element to the job that um, that you know I, I I don't think anybody touched upon, um, but is relevant, very relevant to the job that I do today. You know, once you're appointed and by the governor, you you take your seat, 
they give you the robes or maybe they charge you for them. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You got the robes and now the, you know, how long before the people get their say, right? How long was it? How long is it? Before you stand for retention election? Yeah. You have a a two-year term. So I was appointed in, uh, I took, uh, took office in June of 2019. So 2021. So then you, so you have a two-year term and then you stand for retention at the next general election. So I am up on uh, November of, of this year for, for retention. Um, so yeah, you have a two-year term and then you're up for retention. And if you're retained, then you have a six-year term where you have to stand for retention again six years later. That's what I love about Arizona system. And because, you know, first of all, if you could survive the interview process and you're going to get and people submit their opinion of, you know, they all the names go up. It's all very public, mm-hmm. you know, that and all the names are known and people say good things and bad <laughs> things against you, I'm certain. And so you and you went through all those different people for the interview and finally you get your robes and then you don't get to relax. <laughs> right now, the voters get to decide. So if it turns out you're a total nutter. We get to throw you out, right? Is that how it works, Justice King? Sure. So in Arizona, um, um, as Justice Bean alluded to, that we have a retention election. So it's not like a contested election where on the ballot somebody is choosing between me and somebody else. Um, it's a retention election. It's an up or down vote. And so the, to keep me or not keep me. And so that is, that's the way it's presented on the ballot. And there are, um, there are many, many judges and justices at all different levels. So when you receive the ballot, you will have judges on the on the Superior Court, judges on the Court of Appeals and justices on the Supreme Supreme Court that you can that voters have the opportunity to say, yes, they want to retain or no, they do not want to retain. And this is different from the federal system. And we see the, the U.S. Supreme Court is very public and people, they keep their eyes on the U.S. Supreme Court justices and, you know, the media does, that people do. And, and these, these Supreme Court justices go before, uh, the different senators privately because the Constitution requires the advice and consent of the Senate. And then they also meet publicly and then they get grilled with questions. You know, I don't want you to, you know, comment on the actual questions or the people, but, the hypothetical nominee, you're a justice. What would you want to know, Justice King? What would you want to know from that person before they took the took the took the seat and got their ropes? Well, I I think you know the the key question is what is your judicial philosophy and how would you approach resolving cases? What would you look to? What would be your analysis of of you have a case presented to you? And how would you analyze the, the legal issues to reach a determination um, of how to apply the law in this particular case? But do you trust what they say? I mean, that's a really important job and people covet that job. I don't know if I'd want that job because I don't think I'd want the process. I mean, I, uh, you know, no redhead can make it onto the Supreme Court. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, but the, but, you know, can you trust what they say? 
Can you, or do you need to dig, dig deeper than what they say? Well, I think there are opportunities to dig deeper. I mean, through, through um, you know, my interview process, if, if there were questions, um, for example, at the governor's office that didn't, you know, maybe I didn't, maybe I needed to provide some further explanation. There was fault. There were follow up questions on those particular issues. So, there are opportunities to dig a little bit deeper, and I think that. Um, Again, our, just as a nod to the system in Arizona, there are plenty of opportunities to dig deeper <laughs> right. um, in circumstances where maybe maybe the person who's posing the question doesn't really, um, you know, didn't didn't fully understand uh, what the candidate was saying or how they were reaching or how they again dig a little bit deeper into how they would have further analyzed a particular issue. I, I, I think that's a, a, a very critical and good point to make um, that, yeah, you can mouth the words. You can say, this is my judicial philosophy because you want to placate whoever the power or the person, uh, the party in power um, wants to hear. And you can do that in the Arizona system as well. Um, however, as, as, as Kate uh, mentioned, there's ability to to probe a little deeper, to drill down a little deeper. Um, and in my interview with with Governor Ducey, you know, I was espousing what my judicial philosophy is, and he goes, "Well, you've been a judge for about ten years. Give me a couple examples of where that philosophy uh, came to fruition, and you had to apply it." Yeah. And I thought that was a a, a critical and very good question because it forced me to look at my past and where um, I had to put my philosophy in, into action and how did it manifest and how, what, what was the facts of the case? What did I do? How did I, how did I conduct my analysis? And what was the outcome? So there I thought it was a very good question because I just couldn't mouth the, the, the words and, and the philosophy that, I, that some people might think that a, a person like a governor or a president want to hear. But you have to show them where the rubber meets the road and where you actually applied that philosophy to a true actual case in controversy. Yeah. And, and if I could add on to that, too, I, I think that certainly is applicable to like Justice Bean was a sitting uh, judge at the time. But to, you know, um, to lawyers who are who are coming from practice, you know, it, describe a difficult case that you've handled and, and how did you um how did you address the issues presented in the case and and describe a difficult situation that you've encountered in in practice and how you conducted yourself? I think those are very revealing and very telling. What I like about these questions that are be, were being asked of you is that it required his listening, required the governor's listening. The governor, the audience was the governor, right? And the, and and I think it it shows in the in the types of candidates we get to the bench that someone was actually listening and not just telling. I guess you know I I had a chance to clerk for a judge, and as I'm clerking for this judge, he says to me, and it always stuck with me. And, and I know it sounds like a cliche, but he says the most important thing about being a good judge is that you have to have good judgment. And he was a trial court judge. And and that always stuck with me, but I think he's right. I think he was right. Let me ask you, 
sort of a writ from the headlines type issue. There was some recent controversy. The U.S. Supreme Court had a draft opinion leaked. And, and I don't, again, this is not a political show. You know, we, we don't, we're not going to cast aspersions upon anyone here. But what does that mean from a court perspective? What would, what would your concern be if that happened in Arizona? Well, um, kind of to back up and, and kind of the, the process uh, to give the, the listeners a process of how we how we hear cases. A case we will um, accept review of a case. We'll get further briefing on the case. We will read those briefs as our law clerks will. We'll begin to think about the case, work up you know where we're coming down on the case. Then we'll have oral argument where each side will have twenty to twenty five minutes to to argue the case for us. Before us, we'll have a chance to ask questions of them, and then we'll go back into our conference room and we'll conference the case where each of us goes around the, the table, literally goes around the table in, in terms of seniority, and we give our position and where we come down on this specific case. And then, and then the chief justice will uh, um, assign the uh, writing of that opinion to a specific chambers, a specific judge. They will work up that that uh, draft opinion, and then they will circulate it. Um, and during that process of circulating the draft, that's where a lot of you know the rough edges come off the draft. Positions can be modified. Can, positions can be changed. Um, if there's a split in the court, um, there can be a, a change of position where, you know, if it was a four, three, one way if the, during the process of, of writing the opinion, it could flip and maybe be four, three, the other way. And I think what was what was um, detrimental to the process in, in the case that you refer to is that it was this this case was still in the draft stage. Yeah. So we don't know. Uh, I think we all know that we've read that it, it was a draft from February um, and we're into mid-May. We don't know where the, the justices are in that continuum in the process. So I think it interrupted that uh, process um, to the detriment uh, of, of both sides um, and the process itself. So um, in Arizona, you know, we instruct our clerks to keep everything private Um um, and and we we trust that they do. The justices keep keep everything private until we publicly announce our our written opinion um, through our website, um, and then and then it's for public consumption. Is it important to speak with one voice on the court? I mean, maybe not that you agree, but that you speak at the same time in an organized way, Justice King. Well, I think I think so. I mean, I think that that. Um, with what Justice Bean had indicated, it was really detrimental to the process. Because e even if there is disagreement, even if there is a dissent um, written, what in my experience, um, whichever side I may be on, the majority or the dissent, what is helpful is when there is a dissent written and that draft is circulated, it helps me better understand what is the point of view of the dis of the dissenters, mm -hmm. and it can help sharpen and refocus the majority mm -hmm. opinion, and and vice versa. So I, I think it really is detrimental to the process when you have one original, you know, the very first majority opinion leaked because it is it is not telling of where the 
you know, ultimate, I obviously have no insight into into this particular United States Supreme Court opinion. But from from my perspective on the Arizona Supreme Court, it is important that we that that we do the best on the majority or the dissent side to refocus and sharpen our 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 analysis so that there is one final opinion that's that's released that is the final voice of the majority and the dissent. And, and to, to that point, Bob, um, first and foremost, whether you're in the dissent and the majority or speaking as a, as a unified court, we all go into these cases, every single one of us, we want to we want to get it right. Right. And that's what we work to strive on. We 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 leave our our political persuasions outside the conference room, outside the, the, the room that we draft the opinion. We leave that outside and we want to get it right as to the law. And when something like this happens, it interrupts that process. It interrupts the process of getting it right. And, and right, I understand, is in the eyes of, of certain readers. Sure. But it still, um, it, it, it still interrupts that process. And I'm sure, I would imagine, I can't go into the minds of the dissent of the justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, but it, I'm sure they feel that this process has been disrupted. Right. Because it's an ongoing process, all nine of them. And to have something like that happen, which is fairly unprecedented, unprecedented at least in our lifetimes, um, I think I said, is, is detrimental to the process on on both sides and as a justice too i think you i mean for me um the the confidentiality the understanding of the confidentiality of my colleagues and law clerks that is sacred it is really important that we can have that open conversation to reach whatever the final opinion may be in the case sure um and it is it disrupts that process and that ability to um, be very candid and open and have that back and forth conversation while a draft opinion is being circulated. I, I would imagine that's true, that you got to come when you're dealing with difficult subjects, when you're dealing with the hard case, you know, the easy case, you know, that's going to be easy, right? You don't get the easy case if it's up, up at the Supreme Court, it's the hard case. You'd want to bash these ideas around and against each other and, like you said, to soften out the edges. To make sure you got it right, to make sure that stare decisis is going to last for the next 100 to 200, 300 or more years, that it was helpful going forward. That's what I would imagine. Let me ask you, I want to ask you, Justice Bean, there is a criticism that justices, they're just political actors. And that's all they are. And you pushed against that here today. And I, and I appreciate that. How do you maintain that to make sure that you're not a political actor, you're a justice of the Supreme Court helping with the law. What what do you think the line is? Well, I think it goes back uh, to what we've talked about before in terms of, of um, judicial philosophy and, and a core understanding of how our government works. Um, it goes back to separation of powers. And I think you have to have a fundamental understanding of what each branch does in, in our system of government. And for me, that's marrow deep. Um, I'm a judge. I was a judge on, a, on a, a court of general jurisdiction. I've been an appellate court judge on two different courts. So I have to know what my lane is and I have to stay in the lane. Mm -hmm. I, I can't go outside and um, let my personal policy predilections kind of drift into my decision-making uh, process. And, and, um, 
it, it, it at times it's tough, but at times uh, I take I take um, comfort in the fact that I am just looking at the law and I'm looking at the facts because I know that that's what my duty is um, as a justice on the state Supreme Court. So I think it goes back to a fundamental understanding of, of what you do as a judge. And you can't as a judge, you can't look at these issues through a, a, a political lens. You can't look at, uh, at an outcome that you personally might think is appropriate. You have to look at what the law is given to us by the legislature, and those are the people's representatives. Yeah. I'm not trying to upend what the people, I wanna, I wanna effectuate what the people do. Yeah. I wanna make sure that their voice through their elected representatives is reflected in our decisions. And I might disagree with what the legislature did, but that is of no import to my decision. So I have to keep that first and foremost in my mind, and I have great colleagues that have the similar viewpoint, and they keep that first and foremost in their mind, so I think it comes out in our written opinions. What do you think? you, you agree with this? I do. I very much, very much agree. We are not um, beholden to any particular group. We are not outcome determinative. We are not a policy-making branch of government. And it, it truly is, I think, I think many of my colleagues um, – we talk a lot about the separation of powers and the fundamental role of each branch of government. And it is, it is really imperative that I think people understand um, through civics education and otherwise the importance that we are not in there debating policy. We are not beholden to any group or political persuasion or so forth. We are applying the law yeah. as it was written and as it was you know, originally understood at the time that it was written. Yeah, and I, I'm going to tell you a little story. I had, I once worked on a, just, I was, I'm interest, interested in all areas of law. And so uh, I, I had a chance to do some pro bono work in the First Amendment area. And um, I heard about the case and he was a friend of mine. He called me up and, and, um, and the, and and he says, hey, Bob, would you help me? We had a chance, uh, you know, it was, I can't remember the year, but on year one, we'll just say, and we failed miserably. And then there was a change in the law. And he called me up and he said, change in the law, First Amendment issue, the same First Amendment issue. Help me, Bob. And I said, all right, let's do, let's give it the, uh, you know, I my ego was like, I got to try it again. And so we pushed forward again. And, you know, and there were still some legal issues that, that the legislature hadn't really addressed. And so as the case is moving forward, um, he calls up his buddy at the legislature and he says, hey, this is what's going on. Why don't you look at that issue? And he says, Sure. You know, and I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing what was said. I wasn't there. And lo and behold, in the middle of our case, the law changes. Okay. In my case, unfortunately, I didn't get to win the case. I knew I was going to win that time. <laughs> I knew it. Um, but I didn't get to win because the legislature did its job. And I think that's the way it's supposed to work, right? It is. That's right. Yeah. And 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 in some cases, if if in, if there you know if there's a particular out, outcome or decision and opinion written, you know, then the legislature may respond to that opinion. So if they you know they think that's not the way the policy should be in Arizona, 
the legislature through the say, elected representatives can decide to change the law. Right. And that's how the process works. And I like that. I, and I, I personally, I like that because I want to be able to vote the dorks and jerk faces and the nincompoops out and keep all the people I like in. I mean, that's, that's my prerogative as a voter, right? Exactly. So I just have one final question for, for each of you, okay? And the question is, I have a few tickets that are outstanding. I was wondering if you can... <laughs> No. Okay. We don't have that kind of authority. That's that's that, that's above our pay grade, really. Although when I when I was appointed, I that is the one question that I received from multiple people. I don't know why. It's, people seem to have a lot of tickets. Yeah, I don't, and they think that I can resolve them, which I can't. Justice. But yes, yes. All right. No, the real question I have is: We're in seventy-two countries, um, and we get thousands of listeners. What is it that you'd want people to know, we'll start with Justice King, about Arizona's system, what you do? Just give me that one thing you want, you want us to know. So in Arizona, we have our trial court, we have our court of appeals, and we have our Supreme Court. And there is – we are a court of discretion um, in large – with the exception of um, direct review of, of – death penalty cases, we really can decide which cases that we want to accept review on. And there is a lot of work and effort and time and reading that goes into selecting which cases that we will accept for review. And those cases vary greatly. We have um, industrial commission, civil cases, which can run, you know, the gamut. Criminal cases, we have um, tax cases, family law cases, juvenile cases. We have so many different um, areas of law. And I think we have in 2021, I think there were about a close to a thousand different matters filed with, uh, with the Arizona Supreme Court. And when we're evaluating which cases to accept, there is a lengthy and robust review process and conferencing process that we decide which cases to accept. So typically, since I, you know, I've been on the on the court, the cases that we accept for review are typically very, very challenging cases where there's a a, a split between our two courts of appeals, division one or division two, mm. where there's an issue of statewide importance that has never been resolved before. Um, and so there, there is a, there is a very, um, robust process that goes into deciding which cases to accept. And I think in large part, that's what makes when we accept cases for review, they tend to be very, very difficult and challenging cases. Yeah. What do you think, Justice Bing? Well, I, I've been blessed and fortunate enough to serve on all three levels of the court system uh, here in Arizona. I've been a trial court judge. I've been a, an intermediate appellate court judge. And now I serve on, as a justice on the state Supreme Court. And so I know I know judges um, from all three levels, um, rural judges, urban judges. Um, and I think the the takeaway that I'd like your listeners um, to, to know that if not everyone in that group that I've been fortunate enough to know over the past 13 years, we all are public servants at heart. We want to do this job because we want to serve the citizens of the state of Arizona. And we work 
very hard at getting, like I said before, getting it right. Looking at the law as given to us by the legislature, applying the facts of that case and coming out with a, a decision that comports with the law. And whether you're a, a municipal court judge in a city or town, whether you're a justice of the peace or whether you're sitting on the state's um, you know, Supreme Court, to a person, everyone is a public servant in that role. They work assiduously to get get it right for the citizens because these these cases matter. You know that as a as a lawyer. Oh yeah, these cases matter. There are people, actual people, actual humans. You know that are the litigants in these cases, and our decisions not only affect them personally, but on the state supreme court affect similarly situated individuals statewide. So I, I would just like to leave with your uh, listeners an impression that we do this because we love the work. We want to serve the people of the state of Arizona. Um, we, we, we know our proper role. Um, I know people may not, maybe not truly believe this, but we leave politics at the door and we decide the cases based on the law as given to us and the facts. And um, we do it with love and joy and excitement and passion. Um, it's easy to get up every day in the morning on weekdays and go down to the court because I know how important the work is. I, I absolutely enjoy working with my colleagues every day. Um, and we work for the betterment of, this, of the citizens of this great state. And really, there, for me, there could be no better job. Justice Bean, Justice King, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Is That Even Legal? Remember, this isn't legal advice. If you have a legal question for yourself, reach out to an attorney. Remember that we're fun, we're lovable, and we are here to help you. To my listeners in 62 countries across the world, if you have something you want to explore, email us at producer at evenlegal.com. And don't be shy about leaving a review for this podcast on your favorite podcast forum. See you next time.